Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. He is a laureate from Columbia. Uh, he is a gentleman of liberal thought who, unfortunately, conservatives have to read to try to keep up to speed on the outrages on income, on wealth, the pushback from conservatives as well. Uh, the classic 2002 is globalization and its discontents. There's a long new afterward. It's not just like a six-page afterward. You really put some thought into it. When you wrote the afterward, I'm sure you had an idea in your mind, and then you had to rewrite the afterward. What was the rewrite like of the new afterward? Well, the big idea was that when I wrote Globalization and Discontent, I just left uh, uh, being chief economist of the World Bank. Uh, I saw the discontent in the developing world, and I saw that there was a real rationale behind that discontent. Uh, globalization had been uh, <clears throat> unfair, particularly for, say, Africa. Uh, you have the Ethiopia in the, in the afterward, yeah. yeah ex exactly. And then... Uh, <laughs> Trump becomes president of the United States, and he says globalization is unfair to the United States. And you have to ask the question, how can globalization be unfair to the United States, unfair to the developing world? How can it be that something that was supposed to be so good for everybody okay. winds up being hated by everybody? And uh, one of the reasons for writing the book was to try to, to unravel that, that dilemma. Another one was that uh, Trump says uh, NAFTA and every one of our other uh, trade deals are the worst deal ever. And what he seems to suggest is that, and actually almost said, is that our trade negotiators got snookered uh, by the smart <clears throat> trade negotiators from Mexico and Oh, Thailand he said, come on, he said in, in China, Joe, uh, Joe Stiglitz with us from Columbia, folks. Joe, Professor Stiglitz, he said in China he blamed past presidents. Exactly. That we have been taken advantage of by, by those in other okay. countries. And that, you know, I've watched these trade negotiations for 35 years and the idea that we were snookered by, by those in other countries, that they took advantage of us, is absolutely wrong. We got what we asked for. The real question was, were we asking for the right thing? Okay, but with this, Joe, is you grew up in blue-collar Gary, Indiana. Mr. Trump, fact, represents a huge swath of disaffected blue-collar America now. Why is this blue-collar now... Different from the blue collar you knew in Gary, Indiana, long ago and far away. Well, first, he doesn't represent those They groups. voted for him. Come they on. They voted for him, but they voted <clears throat> for him because he says that he's going to put forward a set of economic policies that are going to That's make their plight better. And that was the third reason I wrote the book. I wanted to answer the question, would the policies that he put forward actually do what he promises or is there a third way, another way? Uh, it's clear that the policies that we did in the past didn't okay. work. It's clear that, and, and my argument was that his protectionism was not going to work either. It was actually going to make them 
worse off. Okay. I, I learned, people go, how did you learn to wear a bow tie, Tom? And it wasn't that I got it from Senator Simon of Illinois, but that was a good thing. The esteemed economist from Illinois long ago and far away. Where are the Democrats in your party who can move centrist to assuage the fears of more traditional non-Trumpian Republicans? Do you have any optimism the Democratic Party can get out of its own way in its own recent historical baggage? Uh, I think so. I I do have some optimism. Why do you say that? Well, I think one of the elements uh, they're beginning to grasp uh, one of the elements of correcting where the problem is, where things have gone wrong, is market power. Uh, that uh, one of the reasons that globalization is being so bad is that it has weakened uh, workers' bargaining power and uh, play, uh, provided a framework in which large corporations have gotten larger and larger. So there's a increasing concentration of market power, uh, just like there was in the Gilded Age at the end of the uh, 19th century. Uh, and they've grasped that and says we uh, and said we have to do something about that. A second element is that we have to have systems of social protection without protectionism. Um, and part of social protection is having a tax system <clears throat> that's fair. Uh, so... Underlying one of the elements of of making our economic okay. system work is that those okay. who gain have to share some of the but, benefits but, with those who've lost. Joe, the primal scream from conservative the four conservative Democrats that are out there, but a huge body of people who I would suggest didn't want to vote for President Trump, is there's the, the Democratic Party has lost its way from the wards of Gary, Indiana from years ago, and from other geographies. Oh, Pat Toomey of Senator from Pennsylvania has to deal with this every day. Yeah, I Why agree. is your world you grew up in so embarrassing to East Coast and Left Coast Democrats? Well, uh, that's a political issue. Uh, let, let's get back to oh, the come economic on. Pol- issue. Poli- Mike McKee, political classes, <laughs> they're the only ones that Joe write the royalty check. He doesn't want to talk politics? I'm, yeah. I'm shocked. There's gambling going on in the casino. <laughs> No, but but, but, uh, there are many complexities to these political dynamics. We all know that in the United States, uh, money matters in politics. And I'm afraid that that the search for money has distorted, has led uh, 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 to a, a focus on where the money is. You know, it's that simple. And and unfortunately, I think we have to get back to the roots of uh, where uh, where the voters are. And the voters are uh, right. ordinary citizens who've not done very well. And, you know, just the, real, the reality is that most Americans have lost uh, as a result what has gone on in the last 30, third of a century. And globalization, as I point out in my book, uh, is a part, well, not the only part of the story, but an important part of the story. And we have to restructure globalization. It's not with globalization itself. It's with the way we manage globalization. Well, let's come back here. Well, let me to... ask one quick setup. Oh, here. please. Um, Set up. And, uh, you only get 30 seconds and then we can delve into this later. The tax bill argument that the administration makes is especially the repatriation that their, their concept is 70% of corporate uh, earnings go to labor, uh, go to labor and only 30% to capital. 
which is kind of the opposite of what most people have said. So uh, do you disagree with them? Uh, Their analysis of what will happen as a result of the corporate income tax cut is uh, wrong. We'll get into that. I want to ask that because that's one of their major arguments uh, that they make, that that workers will get a big raise out of this. And you were talking how we need to do more for workers. Even the CEOs have said that's wrong. I mean, it's really striking that we've gotten a a big dose of honesty from a lot of the CEOs. You know, uh, Cohen asked a group of CEOs what were they going to do with the tax cut? And only three of them (laughs) raised their hands and said, maybe we'll just throw a little on investment. Traditional economics... Uh, research shows that workers get um, maybe 30% of uh, corporate profits, whereas capital, the owners, get 70%, which, as you were just saying, makes logical sense. Uh, And yet the the argument for the tax bill reverses that. Do do you know of any economic research supporting that idea? No. No no credible research. Actually, after the uh, Council of Economic Advisors uh, came out with their report, uh, uh, there were two very good articles that were very quickly published uh, uh, on the internet, uh, analyzing where what the weight of evidence was, and and it was quite frankly uh, an embarrassment because for. Uh, 50 years since its creation, the Council of Economic Advisors has always tried to be uh, reflect the best of economic science. You know, it 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 uh, when the evidence was against it, they would be totally silent. <laughs> you know, and and sometimes politicians do put forward something, uh, but it was never actually going on the record uh, and and uh, saying things that were. Uh, against what economic science had said. And this was an embarrassment for uh, what is has been a, a very strong institution in our government, uh, one that tries to give the American people on a bipartisan basis uh, the, the what economics says about uh, various policies being advocated by administrations. You see, you see what I've done here, Tom? I've set up a, a, a shameless plug for uh, Bloomberg News is Tulu Unrumpia uh, and his story this morning on this. Uh, if you uh, look at Bloomberg.com, uh, he's at, looked at what CEOs are saying they will do with the cash. So uh, there's a third good story out there for you, Joe. Um, the other thing we were talking about uh, in, during the break is the tax trigger that they're putting into this. And uh, let's leave aside the, the idea of, you know, the, the, the value of this tax plan and the politics of this tax plan. But just uh, from, a, from an economic point of view. Tax trigger, uh, bad idea. Well, the basic problem is that uh, when the the nature of the tax trigger is that when uh, if the tax revenues are less than they say, and almost surely they will be, uh, it raises taxes. That's what economists call is pro cyclical tax policy. In other words, tax policy is supposed to run against the, the the tide so that when the economy is weak, taxes are cut to stimulate the economy. When the economy is strong, uh, you raise taxes. We're doing just the opposite. The economy is relatively strong, and we're lowering taxes. That's going to be pro, you know, exaggerate the, the movements of the economy. Right. And the tax trigger will do just the opposite. If the economy gets weak, tax revenues go down, and the tax trigger says, now we're going to raise taxes, uh, and that will weaken the economy further. It's 
the worst kind of economic okay. policy that you could imagine. And, and I tried to read it yesterday, and my eyes glazed over by paragraph 3 and 42 numbers. of It's formulaic beyond uh, belief. Joe, there's a lot of people out there who have grown up Republican who want to find an alternative. Can your Democratic Party generate an alternative for 2020? Yes, I think they can. Who? Uh, well, who is going to be a, a long process? I mean, I, th- I think one of the reasons that you don't see people uh, uh, putting their names forward is we know the political pro- the, what, what the uh, political process works uh, looks like. Uh, whoever yeah, puts their 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 yeah, but their Joe, neck above everybody their... who's running is older than you. Uh, not everybody. There are some <laughs> some some uh, people kidding. who are who are younger who have a, a lot of uh, a, a ability. The real question is, what will the central messages of and the central platform of the Democratic Party look like? And uh, I think uh, to come back say to my book, uh, one of my messages in my book, Globalization and Discontents Revisited, is we have to manage globalization. Better. It's not with uh, the problem with globalization. It's the way we managed it. Uh, when it's working well, it can lead the economy yeah. to do well. But the problem when it's not well managed, even if the economy does well, more than 100% of the benefits go to the people at the top. And so you have to have yeah. systems of social protection without protectionism, which is the route that the Republicans That's are going. Right. So it has to be a different message. Part of that message is market power. Uh, the agglomeration well, of market and power. And within your afterward, we've got the, the phrase market power. Joe Tickets, congratulations from 2002 on a, a strong new edition of his classic, The Globalization. Uh, globalization and its discontents. I got three copies. We've, well, we've got to get, oh, I know you do. I mean, we've got to um, get you into our London studios as well when you're over there. We migrate now to a careful discussion in uh, uh, too short a time here this morning with Viraj Patel of ING on the foreign exchange space. Uh, Viraj, I'm sure you saw the news on Britain with an attendance strength in cable. What euro sterling, I haven't talked about it in a while, is a euro sterling a profitable place to play uh, the back and forth of Brexit? Well, uh, for, for most of the 2017, euro sterling has kind of been a political gauge for relative yes. risks, political risk in both Europe and and uh, the UK. Earlier this year was the French election, so you saw the euro sort of price in a bit of political risk premium. Over summer, the euro turned into a safe haven, and it's kind of demonstrating these characteristics at the moment as well. Our outlook going into next year, for us, we see two cyclical forces offsetting each other for euro sterling. So whilst you're going to get a positive repricing in on the sterling side as Brexit, uh, talks make some good progress in the UK economy, maybe instill some animal confidence. Equally, the yeah. Eurozone economy looks pretty upbeat yeah, as well. That's, so, well. That's right where I wanted to go. They're both strengthening as the ING call, right? Exactly. So for us, we actually see we've, we've got a nuanced profile. We actually think the first quarter might be relatively better for sterling against the euro, just purely because you have the specter of the Italian election risks for the eurozone, and also a positive repricing on the Brexit front. We're seeing part of that today. A transition deal is the next catalyst that we think could drive sterling even higher. 
we're looking sort of for the low 85, uh, 85 level. That, that's our sort of mid, uh, early sort of next year target. After that, we're kind of then in sort of this period where it will net around that sort of 85 level and sort of cycle, fluctuate around there, unless we get another layer of positive steering in the UK economy towards a soft Brexit. Uh, we're mm-hmm. not making any big calls here. That's a, that's a 2019 story. But for now, 85 yeah. is what we're looking at. What is your single best idea into next year? Just grab it up here. What is a cross rate where you think alpha can be made? Well, so we, we we're sort of running with this sort of monetary convergence theme going into next year. So it's 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 where the low yielders can play yep. sort of catch up against the sort of against the sort of high yielders. The yen actually looks like a, a pretty good place that once it finds a peak, uh, dollar yen sort of finding a peak up in one fifteen. But yen crosses as well, especially against sort of uh, some of the some of the high yielders which are suffering like Aussie yen, etc. So we we quite like these sort of convergence trades. For us, we also quite like Euro-Aussie. So Euro against the Aussie dollar. Right. Again, another convergence <clears throat> trade there, the ECB tightening, the Australian yield curve staying relatively flat going into next okay. year. So all of these convergent yield convergent trades. Well, Raj, we're going to have fun on this. And the Bloomberg folks, you'll see this chart first out on Twitter. Thank you for listening to Bloomberg at Radio. You're looking for stronger yen, which on dollar yen is from 111 down to 109, 108. Do I have that right? Exactly, exactly. And so for us, what we're looking at, is, it's this idea of a V-shaped, uh, inverted V-shaped profile for dollar yen. You, you may get a rise just purely as this sure. sort of tax bill goes through, maybe you're at the turn of the year, but I think it'll be quickly faded. I think markets have learned their lesson from translation earlier this year. Right. They want to see the evidence in the growth. They want to see the evidence in the data. I don't think, we don't think we're going to get that sort of evidence coming through at all no. in the U.S. economy. Uh, going into next year. Where's your target on Aussie yen? I'm going to put this chart out, folks, based on what Varage says. Where's your target on Aussie yen? Well, so I, I think when we look at it, sort of, it, it's it's kind of around the sort of it, it potentially could go back to sort of those low, so low seventy five, sort of low seventies level. So sort of cyclically, that's where okay. the direction of travel seems to be going. I'm making the Varage Patel circle on my Bloomberg chart right now down at a 76 level folks we're going to put the this is what i love about surveillance we can have a pro like viraj patel on we can make the chart as he speaks and in this case with radio you can see it out on uh, twitter just like that that's very good from ing viraj patel thank you so much viraj we got to get you back on longer next time sorry for this the abruptness this time Jeff Curry is here with us with Goldman Sachs. He looks at commodities and particularly at oil. Will you go to Vienna? Are no, you, haven't been since go? 2006. I, I mean, well, that's like Eisenhower. Is, is, is it like watching? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest here. Is it like watching paint dry? I mean, you look at the list of plenary speakers and closing yeah. comments. Is it like the definition of watching paint dry? There's a reason why I haven't been back for 11 yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. You say the story with this OPEC is the mystery over inventories is that like where's the oil well i mean there's different metrics to measure the inventories and if you go with the opec data it would suggest that rebalancing is roughly 50 percent complete now if you use the iea data it would suggest it's roughly 65 percent complete now that's not the end of the uncertainty 
Then if you add in what metric do you use? Do you use days of forward consumption or do you use the inventory levels? Um, that will, if you use days of forward consumption, you're 80% of the rebalancing. So how far we are along the rebalancing path, there's a high level of uncertainty. Is, which is there enough for you to make a call? I mean, if we're in a range bound call, do you have a vector up, vector well, down? Well, our, our, our base case is that we're still having the cut ending in um, April of next year. And then we have a, you know, a a gradual increase in both OPEC and Russian production after that. Now, obviously, the, the meeting is going to lead to most likely some extension beyond that. Um, you know, of the three outcomes, you would have you know, the, the nine-month extension, um, which would be, I think, the market really has not priced that in yet. A six-month extension, which is roughly what the market has priced in. And then a three-month extension with a reassessment or a taper discussing how you would actually create an exit strategy. Have you ever seen this this almost negotiated or discourse-driven dynamics in oil supply? No. And, yeah. and, and I think one of the key, the key issues is that there's so much debate right now on what you're going to use as a metric. So if you go back to two, uh, November of 2014, that one was viewed as having a high level of uncertainty. It really didn't because it was either cut or don't cut. This one is where are we in the rebalancing process and how much do we need to actually still do to get a rebalanced market? And that's where the core of the debate is. That is less of a black and white and much more of a gray area to be in. We should mention West Texas 5774 right now, Brent 6345, significantly higher than they were earlier this year. And everybody says, you know, the, the deal is why. But there were a lot of predictions at the time that they were making a, a deal uh, among these countries that what that's going to do is bring American fracked oil back into the marketplace in cent producers, and that would put a cap on prices. Doesn't seem to have happened yet. Well, first I want to correct there. You know, are we at 57.50 due to the OPEC cut strictly? No. Demand. Let's do not underestimate. Demand globally is on fire right now. Because the economies are getting yeah, better. Exactly. I mean, that, that's the, because you got to look at the fact that copper is sitting near you know, 6,800 right now, which has nothing to do with an OPEC cut. But anyway, let's go back to your question about the supply response from the shale producers. We saw earlier this year when we got up around 56 dollars a barrel, we saw a substantial response from U.S. shale producers in terms of the rig count. We aren't seeing it this time. One of the key issues is the fact that the investors um, after May and June of this year um, were less willing to accept um, large CapEx programs. And I would say that it was the discipline being imposed on the producers by the investors is leading to a very different outcome, much more constrained in terms of their CapEx. Why, why did they not want to accept it? They want returns, and, and they want they want cash. They want dividends. They they are no they're no longer going to allow them to deficit spend. So, um, what's the break even return price now for uh, for oil, particularly you know coming out of the the United States? Uh, you know, just looking at the behavior of the producers over the last last year, looking at the financial data coming out of out of the companies, it put it somewhere in that fifty five to. 57 range. So $30 is not going to happen no. again. Well, I mean, you're going to say it's not going to happen well, again. Yeah, if you have a train wreck in demand, <laughs> you could easily see that again. But, you know, barring a train wreck in demand, the answer is unlikely. What about uh, much higher than we are right now? I mean, is there, is there, d d does the supply that we provide now uh, uh, put a cap on? Well, I, I, actually, I think given the, the strength we've seen in the fundamental data recently, 
the level of you know geopolitical uncertainty mm. out there, combine that with the rhetoric around the OPEC cut of a potential nine-month extension, it's actually kind of surprising that this market hasn't moved higher. I, mean, I like to point out, you know, during that hurricane season back in um, late August of this year, these markets just really did not move, which is an indication yeah. Yeah. that you know that volatility both to the upside and downside really has been yeah. capped recently. Jeff Curry, thank you so much. Don't be a stranger. He's with Goldman Sachs as we look at commodities and particularly uh, the OPEC meeting to come. Uh, all sources and particularly Mr. Curry emphasizing that uh, there's huge uncertainty out of this meeting as well. Arguably, in terms of international relations, my interview of the uh, week, if not the month, he is James Stravitas. He is at the Fletcher School, Tufts University, former admiral of the Navy with a modest knowledge of uh, our history of jawboning and such. Admiral, my book of the summer was your fantastic leader's bookshelf. It easily could be my book of the year, but I wanted to get it out right away is my book of the summer. And in it is the heartbreak of a 450-page book where you want to just die through the first 47 pages. It is John Keegan's The First World War. Yeah. He begins with a European tragedy, and then the heartbreak and arrogance and lack of humility of a set of world leaders in Chapter 2, War Plans. Are we planning ourselves into a defense or war position with the policy of the United States on this Wednesday? I worry a lot in that regard, Tom, about North Korea. Um, the, the common phrase about World War I is that the great powers sleepwalked into that war and didn't take the kind of diplomatic economic steps that were necessary to definitively avoid it. And I kind of feel we're edging that way with North Korea. And the uh, intransigence on our side and on Kim Jong-un's side is creating a real collision course. And frankly, um, I think the chances of war on that peninsula have gone up and up and up. And pretty much the only thing left in the locker between us and an absolute necessity to go in and take him on is uh, whether he detonates a hydrogen yeah. bomb over the ocean. And I think that's next. John Keegan is so good at the minutiae in pulling it into the present. For example, I didn't know about the League of the Three Emperors. And this yeah. is ancient 1870 history. <laughs> but what you learn in 1913 is if we do this, they'll do that, but they do that and they do that and exactly. this does that and that. Are we in that same sequential framework in an XYZ space that they were in 1912? We are, and it's called war plans, and uh, we have them, and Kim Jong-un has them in North Korea. And in the First World War, Tom, as you know, they mobilized into this step-by-step-by-step uh, by step by step process. Here, it's an escalation of events from North Korea, and then we're going to respond. And those war plans can drive you inexorably forward unless leaders step up and 
walk back from the abyss. But I see no indication of that at the moment. Okay, let's go technical on us right now, folks. Your aerospace engineering with James Trevitas only <laughs> on Bloomberg Surveillance. All you need to know, folks, is the equation is V equals the square root of GR squared over <laughs> R plus H. That's Galileo. You put a rocket in the air and you want to point it 45 degrees. I got a little upset this morning, Admiral, because we're not reporting in the media that basically they took this ginormous rocket and put it straight up in the air, not at 45 degrees, but way steeper. And it comes down near Japan at a normal trajectory. Can it go a lot further distance in the vicinity of your San Diego? Oh my gosh, Tom! It can it can fly right over San Diego, wave at it, and land in Washington D.C. If you do the math, which you threw out there, that thing will go about eight thousand miles, and that's because of time of flight and okay. angle of flight. So yeah, we're in a different ballpark on distance right now in terms of what he can do. Okay, orbital velocity seventeen thousand five hundred miles per hour, folks. You memorize that freshman year <laughs> of engineering. I mean, we all get that. We're not talking orbital velocity, but James, uh, your good friend, Mr. Mattis, holding court in Washington, our last savior, would suggest, as you say. It would give us time to shoot the thing down. Can you would, say that with confidence? I, I don't think you can because all of our missile tests that shoot in that cruise phase where it would be going over, say, Seattle on the way to San Antonio, we're only knocking it down me. about 50% of the time, Tom. That is not a highly effective system. Yeah. Frankly, I don't want to bet San Antonio on that system. Okay, but within this then, and thank you for your frankness here with your you know, past public responsibilities, within what you've just said, and forget about Seattle, they're supposed to get the thing 25 miles south of Okinawa, pick it up and shoot it down. You know, I get the good news story, which isn't going to happen. How does your Navy respond to these realities within a new war plan made in the last 24 hours? Yeah, we've got to, in the Navy side of things, Tom, we've got to up our game in missile defense. And that means using our Aegis uh, destroyers and cruisers more effectively. And we have the ability to do that. It costs money, but it, I would argue that's money well spent on the maritime missile okay. defense side of this thing. Early in this game, if you're just joining us, folks, from Fletcher School of Tufts uh, University near Boston, James Stravitas with us, former Supreme Commander for NATO and, of course, an admiral of our U.S. Uh, Navy over these. I can't say enough, again, about his sequence of books led by the Leader's Bookshelf. I just, I, it's 75 books beautifully laid out by people with way too much time in their hand to read and <laughs> who know more than, than we do. You mentioned in the beginning of this conversation, Admiral, that North Korea has a war plan. 99% of our audience doesn't buy it. This guy's a nut. He's acting unilaterally without war plans. Does he have a real military behind him? He does, and uh, it's a structured military and a disciplined one, and um, it's not superbly equipped across the entire spectrum of battle, but he has the capability to inflict massive initial casualties on South Korea, particularly on the city of Seoul. We should not underestimate his ability to put that machine of war at play. Right. What does General Mattis need to do to brief all in Washington our legislative branch, and of course his boss, what does he need to do to brief them on the new Stravitas urgency? <laughs> um, I, I'm sure he's doing it, which is to um, 
request more assets for intelligence, to increase the missile defense posture, as we just talked about, to put more offensive cyber weapons at play, Tom. That's a real capability we can deploy. And to begin to consider, this is controversial, a maritime blockade of North Korea, much as we put a blockade on Cuba in the 1960s. Okay. Well, I know you were on the blockade of the Confederacy outside of Lincoln. <laughs> Do blockades work? Come on, it's 2017. It would not work without Chinese cooperation. So as usual, all roads to Pyongyang lead us through Beijing. We've got to get China on board, even to implement that idea, let alone get Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table. Do you, one final question. Do you suggest that we have a constructive relationship with the leadership of China? Or are they playing us for a fool? I think it's somewhere in the middle, Tom. Um, China's okay. playing a long game, and they're playing at a more sophisticated level. We're playing checkers, and they're playing go. Oh, I like. See, that's why he's the professor, Rich Truman. <laughs> he goes right. I, you know, Rich Truman, I'm the worst go player out of 19,000 Bloomberg employees. I lost a house playing go in our Hong Kong office. About 25 years ago. I mean, it's just terrible. Thank you so much. James Trevitas on short notice, uh, the Admiral from uh, Fletcher School. And I can't say enough again about Leaders uh, Workshop. A great uh, book in there on the uh, Greek wars of uh, uh, centuries and centuries ago. And I can't say enough again about John Keegan's, Keegan's one volume. I'm reading it here on the 99th anniversary of uh, World War One. It is an easy read. John Keegan is just can't say enough about it. James Trevitas, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.